recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Presented by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and of course, the International Dark Sky Association. This is Starving for Darkness. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Starving for Darkness podcast with Jane Slade and Michael Colligan. Before we get into it, I want to tell you quickly about the magicians. That's right. The magicians down at Evluma. Go to evluma.com. Greg, they're rethinking LED in all directions. And here's a perfect example is a lot of people have these cob, corn cob LED bulbs. They have one too, but very different from everyone else. First of all, it's small profile which is important, so you, need, you can get yeah. it to fit in the fixture. It's got 20 kV, 10 kV surge protection. A lot of them have half that or less, so that means it's going to last, yeah. and your warranty on it. And it's mm-hmm. 2K to 5K in color temps, so it's got the whole range, everything you need. Let's keep then, it low, though, folks. That, Let's keep it low. Keep it low. You've got wireless dimming capability with your Connect LED Bluetooth app that you can go right into it. And then the final thing i got to touch is the photo control fail safe. Now, that's actually firmware built into the bulb itself. So if your photocell goes out, the bulb learns over time how the photocell operated and continues to operate as though the photocell is working. Never need to worry about that thing again. That's hitting you with a lot of magic right there. Rethinking LED in all directions. Go to evluma.com. That's evluma.com. Now, Starving for Darkness. Well, we we have the other half of Lighting's Power Couple. Um, and that would be Deborah Burnett from the Benya Burnett Consultancy, and we have her here today to talk about darkness. Hello, Deborah. Hey, hi there. Yeah, um, I'm real excited to uh, to be back on with you again and to meet Jane personally face to face. But uh, I promise, sometime we will be able to give each other a big hug. And once again, I'd like to congratulate you on all of the inroads you've made into promoting the dark sky and the concept of the environment and how fragile our ecosystem really is, both Mm -hmm. ecosystem of other life forms and our own internal ecosystem. And, And I say that as an ecosystem because we're just now starting in science to grasp, and unfortunately the lighting industry is the last one to the table to understand the relevance of the microbiota um, for the human health, well-being, and um, the, uh, our progeny and our reproduction system. It's the microbiota that ensures that our newborn children are really gifted with everything that their system needs to get a good start on the environment. And I have to tell something, uh, a little story here, because I found some additional research from the last time that the two guys, Mike and you know, and our wonderful other part of Get a Grip. Um, We're here at our home in California, and we were talking about cesarean births versus live vaginal births and the seeding of the human immune system during the birthing process. And um, one of you, I can't remember which one it was, asked the question about the microbiota being passed to a cesarean birth child. 
Well, um, it turns out that that original research was done here at UC Davis. And yes, in fact, um, those children that are born cesarean versus vaginal birth do lack emphysitis, uh, I believe is the correct pronunciation of, of that bacteria, particular bacteria. And so that sets them up for potential problems with their immune system in the early years. And so, um, so just as a little caveat and aside to that, I wanted to share that information with you. <laughs> well as the rest of the audience and so i'm ready to get started talking that about was for sure me that asked that question guaranteed oh okay um, great because we were we great, were great. talking about we were talking about how we're actually super organisms of all different kinds of uh yes. microorganisms but jane has a question for you i'm sure that she wants okay. to that's very true and deborah hello thank you so much welcome to starving for darkness which is yes. a passion project about really getting the word out to the public at large, that light impacts wildlife and light impacts us. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to you today because I know you've done so much work on this front. And so to start, I wanna ask you, tell me about an experience where you were awestruck, where you felt that the night sky was something that changed your thinking, changed the moment, pivoted you into a new direction in your thoughts. Tell us about a moment that you had that you can remember with the dark sky. Actually, there were two, um, because your, your question is actually a two-part query. Um, it was what impressed me and what directed me to change my thinking. Mm -hmm. What impressed me the most was this was in 2003. I was on a road trip with my then husband at the time. And luck upon luck, we just decided to pull into the north rim of the Grand Canyon, not realizing that you had to have reservations like months in advance. Well, we just happened to pull in at 10 o'clock at night. Somebody didn't show up and they said, OK, you get a cabin right over here near the north rim. And it's like, wow. So he was exhausted, went to sleep. And I had read that there was a, um, a, a tour, a walking tour, and you would meet on the, the portico area near the near the rim. So I showed up out there and I was the early person to show up. And I kept seeing barbecue smoke, but no barbecue smell. And it was like, where's all this smoke coming from? There's no fire alarms. You know, nobody's panicking. What's going on? Turns out it was the Milky Way. I had never seen the Milky Way. I grew up mm. in Philadelphia. I'd never seen it. Mm. Worst part about the whole thing is the guide tour took us on a path to Angel's Point, I believe it was called. And the next morning, I went on it and saw that that path is only about this wide. <laughs> and it was like, oh my God, and the grim was down on the back side. So, yeah, I definitely remember that. But what changed my professional direction about light started early on um, in the 70s. Um, I was working at IBM at the time and married again to my first husband. And um, as a hobby, I was showing horses. We had a stable of a number of horses, show horses. And with show horses, you, you have to feed them at least three to four times a day, exercise them three or four times a day. And, you know, towards the end of the 70s, early 80s, my career was taking off and I didn't have that much time. So I kept noticing that my horses would get an extra heavy coat um, during mm. those winter months. 
and our show season normally started in March. And all of the other horses who had professional trainers were were slick and you know every they were just ready to go. They had uh, they hit their licks. They 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 were ready to go. And so I started going back to my medical research and looking at veterinary research. And at the time, veterinary research then, as is now, is still on the cutting edge of so much that we think is primarily human, but it actually starts with initial research investigative uh, on the veterinary end. And they were showing a strong correlation um, between the light distribution um, for additional light beginning in December um, to enable the horses uh, on professional levels, particularly the sulky races on the East Coast and some of the, uh, the flats in the warmer areas of the world, um, by having additional light in their stalls at night would slick their coats up and get them ready for their spring surge. And for gildings, as well as, as male horses, um, the, the spring surge brings on a, uh, a rush of testosterone that enables their musculature to really just become more um, uh, engaged, if you would. Um, it's it, the production of testosterone increases. So getting them to an earlier chronobiological spring really seems to have played out in the initial research. So in doing my research, I started looking at the lighting in our stables and they were left on all night long, but it was the wrong type of light. And they were left on so that the, um, the minks that we had living beyond in the creek wouldn't come into the stalls, uh, a number of things. And then we had started taking the lights, turning them off at night. And that's when I noticed that the, you know, the hair started coming up on the horses. So at the time, the only, the highest CCT um, fluorescent lamp that I could acquire was a, an early D65. So I had all of the lamps, you know, replaced in my stalls. And sure enough, the shedding started and come at the end of March, they were slick like everyone else's that had been ridden and really produced heavily to, and trained heavily to be able to uh, perform in the ring. So I realized the importance of light and how it can be manipulated. So from that point on, I started exploring um, the relevance of light in the medical practice and understood light as it relates to our immune system, both the innate and the, um, uh, the, the two types, adaptive immune system. Now, Jane, you had attended my session at Light Fair, and, and if you remember correctly, I spoke quite extensively about that. And the innate and the adaptive immune system on the majority of mammals, with the exception of those nocturnal, um, literally is, is dependent upon extraocular as well as ocular photoreception. And so this played a, an extreme role in my direction that I took and the decision that I made in the late 90s and early 2000 mm. to continue on with my medical research and trainings and, and to really delve into light and its impact on um, life forms other than human as well as, of course, human. And, and something that, that just was released, I wanted to bring to y'all's attention because this particularly deals with dark sky. And it's a research that came out and was just released here um, last month. 
and it came out from the University of California at LA, and it speaks about Thea. Um, so are you guys familiar with Thea, T-H-E-I-A, or the Big Splash Theory, no. or the Thea Theory? Okay, well... Please enlighten us. Okay, well, this has to do dramatically with light, the environment, and health, and dark skies. So this research came out and supported an earlier 2016 research by NASA that showed that Earth was indeed impacted by a uh, planetismal, which was a, an early form, almost like a proto-Earth, which proto-Earth, you know, was the way Earth was described 4.7 billion years ago. And at 4.5 billion, um, Thea, which was the proto-tismal, crashed into the Earth. And this is what then propelled the portion of material to orbit the Earth and then to eventually coalesce into the moon. And the type of material that's on the moon after it was brought back from the moon landings, you know, the early moon landings in 1969, was determined to be a different type of quality of reflectivity and refraction of light. In other words, it, it it handled light differently. And so since that time, scientists have been um, exploring how and why um, the, the Big Bang type theory, the theta theory, the, the, the theta, T-H-E-I-A, um, concept really materialized. Well, in 2021, this LA research paper showed that theta is in fact a part of the earth from West Africa to the Pacific. It's a continent sized piece of material that is not origin to Earth. It's Thea. And this concept of the moon is really important because photosynthesis did not happen initially. Photosynthesis happened, and I had a timeline here written down. Uh, photosynthesis actually started, um, oh, by 3.5 billion years ago. And at that time, photosynthesis was not dependent upon water and oxygen. It was more about hydrogen. And so it was several decades, several billion years later, actually, where the photosynthesis started utilizing oxygen. In other words, the waste had built up over these, these trillions of years and literally then enabled um, cyanocyanin bacteria to form, which then propagated life on the planet as we know it. And the earliest plants only started about 850 million years ago. And it's only because of the light and dark of the moon and the moon mm. itself forming. And so without the moon, we would not be able to have the life that we have here on this planet to begin with. I totally, so, I have had that intuition for so long, Deborah. you wouldn't believe it. I actually, when they're looking for life around other planets, when you hear about people like astronomers, I often wonder yeah. myself, I bet you it needs a moon. I bet you there's something about the way the moon is like a, the moon is almost like a stir stick that, that, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, it's literally, <laughs> no, I'm like serious. That, yeah. Like when I think about I it, it's like. If you go to Frobisher Bay in Nova Scotia, you see like the tide gets pulled out so far and you're like, well, right. that's the moon doing that. That's like that the moon. literally like pull water. Yeah. Literally pulling yeah. millions and millions of gallons of water, like a billion, trillions of gallons of water trillions. from one side of the earth to the other. And then it lets it go and it flows back. Like that's incredible that people don't 
like that that is not central to life on other earth finding does it have a moon because right. I, I think you yeah. need a there's something to that uh, the moon that that's stirring the pot or something on earth that's making the life come alive but what I, you know i always whenever i whenever i um whenever i uh, i speak to you i always have this dawning every, every, when i spoke to you at um light show or well, light show west wherever it was somewhere in january yeah. last strategies year and we could, yeah. strategies, strategies in light, in light. And then at your home, of course, too many bottles of wine, yeah. but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> but I, al- I always leave, and Jim was telling me, I, you got to meet Deborah. But I always sit back and think, like, it's so obvious, like, that we, why do we think that we are above these things and other animals and plants and that are not? Like, we, people are, like, using light to affect horses or they're doing this. It's so obvious that it must affect us. Why is it that it's taken us so many years to realize that we need darkness and that we need light and we need certain kinds of light and certain kinds of darkness, like a, a certain amount of darkness every day? Why has it taken till 2021 for... I mean, Jane's known it for years, but why has it taken so long for it to start to come into the lighting industry? That maybe it's not the lighting industry, it's the lighting and darkness industry. How come it's taken so long? Um, Jim and I were just having a chat about this the other day, and he disagrees somewhat, but usually, I hate to say it, but a lot of the times I'm right. (laughs) So, (laughs) we're going to tell you what I think, so we'll see who's right at the end. Um, Back... In the late 90s and early 2000s, I started um, when I was asked to do keynotes or do seminar CEUs or even teach classes at different universities here around the country. I would start introducing the concept of how ambient light, whether it's in offices or at night or during the daytime, impacted our health and well-being. And it really wasn't up until the 1995-96 when... um, a number of researchers, Foster and Brainerd, you know, really started understanding the relevance of what the initial research from the 1980s was showing about a centrally located biological clock. Um, but it even goes earlier that in the 1970s, we started understanding that the pineal gland was involved, but no one seemed to know the exact mechanisms of how it worked. Um, so. What happened in 2001, 2002, um, Dave Burson at Brown was the one who said, okay, well, you know, everybody, uh, Summer Hattah, Brainerd, Foster, everybody's really formulating this SCN. I'm going to take the hit if it's wrong, but I'm going to lay my neck on the line and literally say, this is the SCN, the supercosmetic nuclei. And it took a few years. It took a few years to get that going. And what got it going in the lighting community was Jim had a big part in this. He was start. He was with Dave Crawford, the initial um, driver of the uh, IDA. And Jim at the time was on the board as well as their technical director. And he started um, hearing the same things that I was hearing. Um, and seeing, reading. And so he took it upon himself to overlay the human visual sensitivity curve with the then emerging circadian knowledge of the curve um, for the, um, the, the spectral power distribution of light and overlaid at the time the, the typical LED streetlight, which was five to 6,500 uh, CCT. <coughs> and we found, he found that um, the 
this peak of the blue shift in the LED matched identically to what was known at the time for the circadian curve, human. And so it emerged at the time where I was asked to deliver a keynote in Europe um, for a major lighting conference. So when Jim and I met, it was hate at first sight, but he and I still communicated. Oh yeah, a year later, two years later, it was hate at first sight. We could not get a lot of oil and water. And so I asked him if I could um, use his slide and I introduced it to the lighting world and it seemed to take off and it's just, you know, exponential, exponential. But like anything, anything um, in the world, it has an endpoint in terms of its notoriety. And so we saw the circadian understanding and manipulation turn into the racket within the last three or four years. It's a racket. So many industry uh, manufacturers and salesmen and men or women um, are promoting, use this light to change this, use this light to change that. And they're not understanding the science, but they're selling products. So in, in essence, it's evolving into a racket. So naturally something else has to take its place. And there's nothing technologically coming on board. The dark sky has always been there, but it's like, well, we gotta have something new to talk about, dark sky. And that's what's been happening the last two years. And I've seen it, I've seen it. We get more calls and more projects to oversee lighting exterior projects at night on bridges and buildings and whatever, and do the environmental engineering. Jim works it out how it gets done. I work out the concept and provide all of the research to base what his, his findings are. And that's the reason why we work with the, the California you know, Coastal Commission, the Energy Commission, different boards, um, you know, uh, so many different organizations <clears throat> to be able to get everything that's needed to know with the public. And Jane, that's why I was so excited to see your article because I had pitched Dark Sky a number of times. Um, and, you know, I was told by several of the leading uh, lighting magazines, no, nobody's interested. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. And you broke through that barrier. So congratulations on that. Um, there's two or three Thank things you. in your initial article that I have to offline correct you on. But <laughs> the majority of that article was spot on, sister. You well, which article right. are you talking about? The very first article. Yeah, the very first article, uh, LDNA. There was two or three minor uh, minor discrepancies in terms of how light impacts the the animal population, and it had to do with the um, extraocular receptivity, particularly in fish as well as in birds. And the emotional, not well, emotional, but the um, um, the societal uh, and the uh, the societal organization of those two species and how it's impacted by light, particularly birds. The societal impact, uh, especially around their nesting and roosting periods and their mating uh, mm -hmm. periods. Not so much during migratory fly patterns, but um, it, it has to do with their extraocular re receptivity, particularly in Well, fish. I would love to discuss that with you, and I have sure. a lot to say. I completely agree with you that I, I don't feel that the circadian technology that's coming through, I, I have never um, been, I have kind of an aversion to it. 
Um, and, yeah. and so, and, and I invite any counterpoints that you have about articles that I've written, uh, because at oh, the way no, that I, I see I, it. Everybody yours and they're great. <laughs> well, thank you. But I, I appreciate that. And, but my point is, is that if we can come together and elevate the thought, because quite frankly, you cannot go out and get a degree in lighting on how light pollution is impacting our environment. That does not exist yeah. in academia at this point. So we are currently pushing the thought forward and we need to align ourselves and come together to be able to elevate the movement and make the thought as pure as possible. So I invite your counterpoints. And I would also say that, you know, with circadian rhythms, you know, we can go out and get a degree in and learn that broccoli is extremely good for you and all the reasons and all the, the nutritional aspects of it. Or you can remember that your grandmother told you to eat your vegetables. And so there's two different ways to go about it. And we need both. You need to have the artists going out there and saying, this is my intuition. This is my hunch. Let's lean into it. And then you need to have the scientists going through the research and supporting it. So we absolutely need to do both. And in that way, the way I feel is that the natural daylight cycle is, has been there since the dawning of time. Light has been the same on every place in the planet since the beginning of time. So that is our Rosetta Stone. So we can support it with research and we can say, well, you know, this is the impact that light has. Um, but we can also know that at the end of the day, we can just trust and mimic the natural daylight cycle. And to your point, no circadian system is mimicking the, the intensity of the natural daylight cycle. You just cannot get that amount of light on your skin from an interior circadian system. So that's why the whole thing is a racket to me, no matter how technological you get. Um, and so that's what I would say about that. And now I want to dive into some of your work because I know- sure. You are recognized as a leading authority in the field of epigenetic design, an award-winning state-registered interior designer, licensed building contractor, you go girl, and a chair of the Color Marketing Group. I'd love to hear about that. Um, and I know that you, what is epigenetic design for a listener who may not know what that is? Okay. Well, I like your broccoli concept because that's the way that I teach and that's the way that I learn. So I'm going to stand up here a second. Okay. <laughs> so I found this out to teaching about, uh, I'm going to lower my desk to, to understand. So for my audience to understand about epigenetics, if my arm, my arm is a chromatin. Okay. Mm -hmm. And on that chromatin, are the the ATCs and Gs, you know, the nucleotides, the DNA. And over top of this arm, the chromatin and the ATCs and Gs, is a protein sleeve. And the protein sleeve has a marker on top of it. And this mm -hmm. marker has one job, to look out the environment internally inside our bodies and to look out to see what's happening outside. So outside the body, extraocular, um, particularly for light, uh, our bodies are controlled by three stimuli, primary stimuli, light, ambient light, whether natural, interior, or reflected light, albedo, as well as reflected off the 
painted surfaces on the walls, as well as the feeding times, the times of day that we feed, times of night that we feed or not feed, and also the temperature. But it's the variability mm. of that temperature. So this epigenetic marker above the gene mm -hmm. marker is very responsible for that. If it gets the signal that you're eating at two o'clock in the morning, it's gonna pull up and some of these genes are gonna turn on and off. If this marker gets the signal that you are reading in bed with a blue rich white light and it's one o'clock in the morning, it's gonna go, hey, start the sequence for, you know, cortisol awakening response, bing. And there you go. All of these genes are firing. And you have to understand that the brain is anticipatory. It doesn't think. It's like dominoes. It gets a message and boom, the signal goes out and everything starts responding accordingly. And, and this is the important aspect of, of how we understand the body and brain now. And so we need to, to understand that our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers, our ancestors saying, eat your broccoli, go to bed at night, you know, don't mm -hmm. you know, do this, don't do that. They're based on awareness and that's yes. what we are losing. And yeah, we're, like, when just I'm going to jump in. It's like these, yeah. like these studies you see that prove the obvious, you know, that mm -hmm. y y like they did, a, I read a study the other day that, you know, women like taller men. It's like, Okay, that's, I think yeah, everybody I knows that, okay? Yeah. Like, yeah, duh. You know, like, I, you don't need to, you oh, don't yeah. need to, anybody that would fund that study, you have to be like, you know, who doesn't know that as an adult? Of course, that's an attractive feature. Men, women find tall, tallness as a part of an attractive feature of a man, right? That doesn't well, mean that's all they find, but it's just one of those things. Reproductive viability. Um, it's the same way with yes. women's lips. When women's yes. lips are an asterisk, um, and also during the ovulatory phases, the lips are more engorged. And this is a non-verbal um, uh, cue to alert <laughs> males, particularly stronger, taller males, that this couple would produce progeny that, that literally are going yes. to procreate. And that's why women wear lipstick. And that's why women oh, wear lipstick. That's why women <laughs> wear lipstick. I mean, like... Well, actually, that, that really was. With the Egyptians, they started dyeing yes. uh, sure. their lips. Right. So, I mean, they, they, these studies to prove the obvious, like the broccoli point, um, the lipstick point, whatever you want to call it, you know, how, how much evidence do people actually need before we start doing what's obvious? You know what I'm saying? Like what, yeah. what Jane is saying about, you know, look, we, we, this is a primordial, primordial reality, darkness and light. I agree exactly with what you've been speaking about. Um, this awareness and the inability, particularly in the academic realm, to understand common sense and mm -hmm. unteach common sense and explain broccoli and explain yeah. very basic concepts and how and why people need to understand the concept um, of dark skies. Uh, I, I have attended so many different conferences on dark sky and sat through lecture after lecture after lecture. And it's about photometric studies and this and that, mm -hmm. this and that. It fails to explain it in simple terms, in simple terms. And, and yeah. 
this this is what's missing right now in dark sky the simplicity of i want to make a, a point there which is that, you know, they, they often say that art is actually 20 years ahead of science. And so, yeah. you know, in my, in my family where I, I grew up, my, my dad's a biologist um, and mm -hmm. many of my family are really operating from the left brain, which is mm -hmm. science proven thought. Um, right. I really am not that person. I, I love science. I adore it. I use it. But what I call myself is a science loving artist. And mm -hmm. what I really feel is that because I ride the line, I often ride the line and I, I feel bad for people who can only live in the science proven thought lane yes. because you miss out on the intuition because science is rigorous for a reason. You don't want anyone calling your science soft. Um, I don't want anyone calling my science soft. But I think that if you are only living in the lane where you're not involving your intuition, where you do have to make some leaps and bounds and to kind of lean in, these are in support of one another if you use them well enough. And I think that the overemphasis, and I always joke when I send a photometric drawing to someone who's not in the industry, I'm like, it's one of the ugliest drawings you can look at, like all the little <laughs> foot candle numbers. And, you know, a, a, a lay person gets a, a photometric drawing and they're like, ah, I see all the numbers. I can't even read it. So there right, is, exactly. a, yeah, there's an onus on us in the industry to really bring this to a, it, to, in explanation that is a beautiful explanation to sell the idea, to make it attractive. And so there, that, is why um, Alan Alda has a whole retreat for how to help scientists actually learn how to communicate. I have a friend who, oh, yeah. who went through that retreat and he said it was one of the most wonderful eye-opening experiences and it made him a better scientist. So, Good. you know, I just want to speak up for the other side of things because we tend to live in this science-driven world where we're really losing a way to explain and also a way to lean into that awareness that you speak of, Deborah, yeah. that I think is so important. And, and you're exactly spot on. And to continue on that thought, and, and we've had this discussion, Mike, we've had this discussion when you guys were here about academia, um, only literally accepting instructors um, and even now, last few years guest lecturers that hold PhDs mm -hmm. um, and they're failing to understand the importance of in the trenches boots on the ground knowledge experience um, and different points of view that's what an education used to be it used mm -hmm. to be an opportunity to challenge students to think mm -hmm. not regurgitate yeah and, my grandfather that's um, I I have a really personal story about that, which is my grandfather. Oh, yeah. So, um, so um, Mike, you asked me the name of my cat today before we started recording, and it's Ferdinand, and that sure. is because my grandpa was named he's Ferdinand. He's part of the show. Ferdinand, Ferdinand the cat is part of the show. <laughs> yeah, he, he makes cameos. Um, Ferdinand Denbo <laughs> was my grandpa, and he okay. was a professor at Wellesley. And um, he, he got that professorship. It was um, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity, but he did not hold a PhD. Um, and he, he was always made to feel a certain type of way about that. But what I'll tell yeah. you is what my grandfather did do is he was a chaplain in, the World War, in World War II in the Army. Mm -hmm. 
And I can tell you that I believe wholeheartedly that my grandfather learned more in the trenches, sure, literally. holding people in their final words, regardless of religion, bringing them to their making um, than he did in a PhD program. And I think that there's a lot of practice-based learning in our lives that when you only emphasize certain types of credentials, you really eliminate certain types of thought that would enrich programs. And considering lighting is so practice-based, it's a real loss that we can't bring people in from different avenues. You also, you, oh, it's also, it's, a, it's also a leadership killer. You know, it, a lot of yes. people, it, it destroys the idea of leadership, you know, you listen to the Premier of Ontario speak, and one of the things he said the other day is, well, I have to listen to my chief medical officer. Every Premier in the province and Canada has to listen to their chief medical officer or they're dead. They're done. They don't. It's like, well, there's also leadership, Premier. And so, you know, you can listen to him and then you bring in other voices and you bring in other people and then you make a decision. You don't it, like this idea. And there's like a tyranny in science now. It's almost tyrannical in our world where everything yeah. has to be proven with a double blind survey and studies and all this sort of stuff. Listen, it's so obvious that humans need darkness. We don't need any studies. Okay, we need right. darkness. Maybe we don't. We yeah. we can't figure things out because we can't see the stars. You know, I would love to see a graph of the popularity of yoga and meditation, beside the increasing in in the loss of darkness in our in our lives. And I think people are searching for it. They just, as Jane always says, she says people don't know what they're missing, and that's part of the problem. You know, you'd go outside. You're at that uh, on the Grand Canyon. You see this beautiful Milky Way. You don't even know what it is actually. How tragic is that? That's a tragedy. This is a true tragedy of the commons. It is a true tragedy of the commons. I just want to make one point. And then I'm going to hand it to you, Deborah. I just want to make one point, which is to all of our listeners who do have the PhDs and are doing the research. This is not a slight on you. I absolutely mm -hmm. need to call on that research. It is just in support of the work that other people are doing mm -hmm. who don't yes. hold those degrees. We need both sides yes. of it. Thank we you, need Jane. to have yes. the rigors of science and also the leanings Learned. of intuition to drag us there. So uh, this is in support of, not in negation of. And Deborah, right. I'll hand exactly. it to you. We are hot today. Okay. Hot, hot. <laughs> it's actually warm here in California. Windy as all heck, but uh, definitely a little bit warmer than it has been the last few months. Okay, so um, the one thing that, that we've been speaking about is darkness and our dependence on darkness. But the thing that we won't see in a lifetime, but has been changing and that we need to be aware that since 1898, I believe it was George Darwin, which was a son of Charles Darwin, um, he started the concept that the moon is constantly pulling away from the earth. And a few years later, it was proven that it is. And it is constantly and continually pulling away from the earth. And now with the discovery that the Thea material is part of the earth, you know, a whole continent size of it underneath the mantle between West Africa and the Pacific. Can you imagine what changes may be precipitating because the moon's pulling away, the moon has a lot of Theta in it, we now know, and the earth has Theta in it. What happens when they start separating? 
So as mm. we get more supposedly uh, worldly with all of our lights, more than 24-7, they're just everywhere possibly you could think of. Um, what's going to happen to our grandchildren's grandchildren? Because that's, you know, who's going to be impacted by even some of these minuscule distances of the moon moving away from the earth. And some of the other things that are going to be coming about that we find that support darkness. And, and it's the darkness that really matters. Um, we're, we're doing a major project um, on a, a major landmark bridge here in the U.S. And we found out that on the two years working on this project, um, that it was not the birds' migratory patterns that was in danger of eliminating this world-famous bridge. It was the eelgrass and the zooplankton. And the eelgrass and the zooplankton naturally live underneath this pristine darkness bridge. Granted, it's in the middle of a major city and the, you know, light pollution. I don't know what the border, I don't remember what the border scale is on the city itself, but underneath this bridge, boom, it is dark, pitch dark. We, Jim and I have ridden around in the police boats at two o'clock in the morning a number of times, you know, taking our surveys and light measurements, et cetera, et cetera. And so in, in our research, in my research in particular, um, discovered that it's the eelgrass that is the major economic producer of the food chain for the entirety of this bay. That's mm. tourism, supports tourism, um, fishing, the fishing industry, the tourism industry, uh, you know, everything that you can think of that supports and gives this city notoriety is dependent upon the eelgrass. And they are disappearing to the point that the only large mass of eelgrass is underneath this bridge. And the eelgrass is important because this is the nursery for all of the anchovies. They have their eggs laid there. They fry. They, the baby fish are called fry. They go into the eelgrass. That's where they grow up so that they can be eaten by the rest of the telos fish and the other um, the marine mammals that live in that area. And so without this, the fish that people go to sport fish, they're not going to be there anymore. Um, as well as some of the other um, uh, species that depend upon the, the byproducts of these fish, the birds and, you know, the other mammals and, of course, the humans for the economic benefit. But the thing that supports the eelgrass is also phototoxic. Toxic. And it's in it's it's so inconsequential in its thought that it's so often overlooked <laughs> believe it or not it's zooplankton poop and yep. because zooplankton live underneath this bridge zooplankton come up at night and if they yes. get the wrong light or they see light they go down and when they come yep. up that's when they defecate and it's the fecal material that they defecate that is the food that supports the rhizomes of the eelgrass that live under the bridge. Zooplankton so actually has been likened to jet propulsion. In fact, that when yes. the zooplankton, they hang in the bellows of the water. And when light is shown, they'll stay there to avoid the UV light and predators. And then at dusk, they vertically navigate up. And this up that water column. happens yeah. across the, the face of the water churning yes. waters and scientists have likened it to jet propulsion to bring the nutrients through the ecosystem. Yes. It's incredibly exactly. important. Yes. And that's the reason why 
you know, when I was doing the deep dive research, I literally, the report, the several, several, several page report that we had to produce, spent a great deal of time dealing about the zooplankton lifestyle, their aversion to light, the type of light, and the reflectivity of the bridge lighting that was being proposed and what to do to contain the lighting and how not to be impacting the, the surface as well as the water column itself underneath where the light would be striking the surface. Um, and so this is, this is the relevance of what we have to do as lighting designers and in lighting photometric engineers, illuminating engineers, and ecologists and environmentalists, we have to look beyond birds and turtles when we're talking about the environment. We have to do totally. that. And, and so in our writings, totally in our agree. speaking, have to speak about other forms of life. I want to jump in right now because I, I was just yeah. thinking something for so long. When uh -huh. we were naming this show, uh, we had different names, uh, Dark Skies Ahead. There was all these different names coming out. Yeah, yeah. And and in talking to Jane in, in six preliminary episodes, what I realized, and this is straight from Jane, was that it isn't about dark skies. It's about darkness, dark earth, dark water. It's uh -huh. Dark skies is so limiting to the idea because right. – Everything needs darkness. It's just—it's not just seeing the stars would be fantastic and eliminating all that would be a wonderful thing to do and we have to light for safety and all those kind of things, yes. But there's other, uh, there's other, there's other processes in the world yet to be discovered by scientists that we, we don't need to study for though. We know that it needs darkness. And um, you're talking about the, the eelgrass and the zooplankton. The zooplankton's constipated now. It hasn't taken a shit in three days because, <laughs> because, because it's scared of the light. I mean, I would, would I like, I don't need that many studies. It's so obvious. Like it's really That's obvious. True. It's true. Well, see, the other thing is that we're, we're hampered. We're hampered because the, the discipline of scotobiology is relatively new. A lot of people don't have never even heard the term scotobiology, which is a study of darkness and the, the, um, biological aspect of it on different life forms, how darkness impacts. And the life forms we have, I guess it was estimated recently at like uh, 1.7 trillion species currently alive on earth. And that's less than a small fraction of all of the species that have ever, you know, lived on mm. earth. We're killing them off like, like, you know, flies on, on honey, you know, just showing them off. But out of those 1.7 trillion species that we know of, that we have here on Earth, species, not individuals, but species, classifications, we only have named 1.8 million of them. So hmm. it's hard to really get our hands on how much damage we really are doing if we can't even identify the species who could possibly be identified as being harmed. And the science of identifying those and understanding how their, their, their metabolism, their biology, their physiology, their neuroendocrinology is impacted. Scotobiology is so relatively new, hardly anyone has ever heard of it. And it's, so this is where bare bones, bare grass effort needs to be initiated. And it's unfortunate that the general public does not understand the language of science, does not understand the language of um, uh, explanation. We are, in fact, since the 1950s, uh, visual learners. 
We are highly visual and soundbite driven. I learned that from 20 years of on-camera work at CBS. Soundbite, soundbite, soundbite. And you have to be engaging and you have to be able to get that audience to where they're lying on the sofa. Yeah, okay, okay. Between flipping channels, whatever. Oh, that's interesting. You have mm -hmm. to get it to them on that point. And where that's why I, that's why I love the name of this show. Yeah. That's why that's why it had to be this name, Starving for Darkness. But you know, you know, here, here's what like as a guy who sells light bulbs every day, okay? Okay, what do I know? But here's what I'm going to I'm going to say something that you know, we can make interventions but most of them are negative or have negative even when we think we're doing something positive there ends up to be in uh, you know in some unintended consequences that come out of it oh yeah but i often like to look at things that um you know you and infer the opposite so for example casinos have known about circadian rhythm disruption for a long time casinos have known that if you shine white light into somebody's eyes late at night and get rid of the oxygen in the window so no natural light they don't know what time it is no clocks and really bright lights and lots of blah, 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 sounds they'll give you their paycheck so um casinos have known this so if we infer the opposite okay that you get rid of the crazy loud noises you have lots of windows and you don't shine lights directly into people's eyes, you're probably going to do good for them. So what are you doing with a cell phone? You're shining the light directly in your mm. eyes. Mm -hmm. that, what's associated with that? Addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. That's what's associated with shining light directly in your eyes at night, getting involved in addiction, social media, gambling, pornography, whatever you want, right? So I, I think the best way to kind of find the truth sometimes is to look at where we're doing damage and then for the opposite of that. It's a very good guide to, you know, not to knowing, uh, you know, what, what the, what the, you know, what's right and wrong. You know, hey, did the, did the earth always have bright white LED lights shining into the water? No, never had that before. Does that make a difference? Yeah, probably makes a big difference actually. Yeah, that's yeah, a that's great so. segue yeah. for, for your work, Deborah, because you talk about how light, color, temperature, music, sound impact human health, genetic expression, sleep, workplace fatigue, cognition, obesity, aging. So you're really talking about this. Can you dig into that a little bit more for us? Yeah, because I never finished addressing your question about the genetic design. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, there the we go. <laughs> okay, so epigenetic design literally is understanding um, uh, response design. So mm -hmm. if you place this color in this room on this wall, something's going to happen. If you place this object here in your visual sight line, this is going to happen. And it goes back to the tenet of Feng Shui. And Feng Shui, um, in its original um, interpretation, not just through the Bagua, but earlier than that, uh, Bagua is, is one form of understanding feng shui. There, there's several different disciplines and applications of feng shui. Um, literally, it is just looking and the awareness of how objects in our visual path, in our peripersonal space, which is at two and a half feet around our body. That's the reason why you know when somebody's up behind you, even though you mm. can't hear them and see them, you sort of sense them. That's called peripersonal mm -hmm. space. We all have that. So, but, but in our modern world, we get so overloaded that we, you know, we get so enmeshed in what we're doing or so involved, we tend not to listen to that very subtle knowledge and awareness. And when we do, we then start 
realizing that it's the little things that make all the difference. And epigenetic design, um, I started that back in the 90s, early 90s, to explain uh, how biology and decorating, or, you know, plus design, really went together. And because I was, I was trained as an architectural designer and then my license as a general contractor, I started building, you know, um, two, up to two stories was, was my, uh, my license limit. And when I got involved in designing health clinics, um, how, how it really made a difference as to where I placed the corners in the walls, how the patterns in the floors would work with uh, different age groups and their ability for contrast uh, recognition and the ability for wayfinding. Um, and that involved uh, and leapfrogged into my research on the, uh, the, the hippocampal region particularly on C3 and how that is involved with um, understanding distances and how we are able to orient ourselves within a space. And light plays an extremely important uh, role in that. I'll give you an example of epigenetic design. Um, when you have a hallway, whether it's in a residence, an office building, or a, a healthcare facility, and the hallway ends there's a blank wall and then rooms shoot off on either side. You know, some individuals might hang a painting there or, you know, representation of one, some part of the country that you're from, you know, they'll hang a sign there or put a plant there. Um, and, and sometimes they place a window there. And a window is unfortunate choice, unfortunate choice, if it's gonna be a glare source. So mm. for the last probably 15 years in most commercial spaces, windows are not placed there. So they'll hang a painting, but they miss the opportunity to assist the hippocampal region, particularly in healthcare environments or high stress environments where people tend to get lost, to illuminate that painting correctly so that the light is going to be drawn automatically to that painting. And it has a very specific purpose because when you illuminate the surface of the painting, as well as the border of the painting, it corresponds to two different areas in C3 of the hippocampus. It involves the spatial awareness, the spatial matrix, it's 12 different layers of spatial matrix, and it involves the contrast sensitivity between the surrounding background, the medium ground, and the foreground. And that involves all aspects of memory. And it solidifies in the memory base how and where you are in your wayfinding process. And the floor patterns, but most people can't tell you whether in the hospital or an office building, what co color is the floor. They go, well, I never thought about it. Hmm. <laughs> but if you arrange the floor patterns so that they intuitively are aware of it, they will notice distinctive differences between floors, between different divisions, you know, go to, how many times have you been in the hospital and, oh yeah, just go to the CT lab, it's down over there. And it's like, yeah, okay, well the sign says it's on the fourth floor to the right, but there's so many different rights after I go 10, 15 feet into a seat, you know, into that wing, where do I go? You know, and so this is what we're missing, the light aspect. And whenever you shine light on something, that's where your awareness is. Jane, I'm looking at your, your environment right now. 
Mm -hmm. And the red in your poster matches uh, the red in your lipstick. And mm. so my eye is continually going. It's that kind of motion on my eye goes several times per millisecond. Uh, some estimate five to seven per millisecond. The eye is going back and forth, back and forth. You don't even realize it trying to locate where you are. And mm -hmm. if you were to lower your painting to where it's um, uh, proportioned lower within the background visual of your space, the red would be closer to your mouth lipstick color. Mm -hmm. And so I, my eye would not naturally be scanning all around your space. It would be going between the red in the poster and the red on your lips and you would be looking at you. And as I mm. said earlier, Jim has been in my studio here messing up my, my lighting and messing up my, uh, my height of my table. So ordinarily, um, I am in a position, let me see if I can get this down. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Just for the listeners, um, Deborah's husband is six, is six foot six, I think, and seven. six seven. foot seven, and Deborah's five foot. Five seven. Well, I, well, five eight. Now I've five shrunk. Eight. Oh. Okay. So I got. So there's five, they got this thing has to go up and down quite a bit. But I have to ask you something. It's also messed up my lighting, so I can't really tell you this demonstration. But normally, and I and I did a demonstration on this for a client a few months back, that the eye is going to go from the color of my face to the color of the basket back here. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to be paying more awareness to my face. But here I'm sitting in my studio right now where the natural light is coming in and shining different colors. Our normal studio lighting is not set up for me. So you're just getting me as me. <laughs> so, um, but going back to your question. I have to Jay, ask you something. Oh, oh sorry. yeah. Okay, oh, sorry. I have to jump in here because I, I, I have a really uh, um, important question that I have to know. And it's at the risk of sounding a little bit. I know. I tend, I tend to go on. I'm sorry. I'm gonna, uh, no, that's okay. Uh, I, at the risk of selling a little bit woo-woo, okay? You talked about yeah. that Perry personal space, okay? Yes. And, um, a and I have to tell a little bit of a story because it's kind of weird that I did this. But anyway, a, a friend okay. of mine, his wife is a master Reiki practitioner. Yeah. Okay. So we did some lighting in his home and uh, she, she didn't like the lighting designer. So she called me and I came in and I helped her with a few things. And then I left and then I sent them the invoice or whatever. And she's like, well, why don't I, you know, give you some free Reiki sessions? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I found it the most therapeutic, relaxing thing yeah. I had ever done. Okay. And they don't even touch you. They just like, I know. I don't know what the hell she was doing. I was gone. It's the first time in my life I've ever lucid dreamed was during a Reiki mm -hmm. session. Okay. I actually lucid dreamed and two or three times. I went 10 times. That is, there's something happening there. I don't know what it is, but is, do you, do you find in your research that, 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 that the darkness in the room, the dimmed lights and the other person being there and the extraction of energy or whatever they talk about is that something to do with that Perry personal space because you just met I think we talked about this before but it might have been six bottles of wine at that point or something but <laughs> I can't remember what the answer was then but uh it, is that legit like is there something happening there yeah. that's real yeah actually actually there is there's not much quote-unquote legit science uh, peer-reviewed science but there is science from um qualified professional medical uh, researchers as well as scientists. Uh, in fact, there's, there's a whole discipline that was started by a NASA researcher by the name of Barbara Brennan back earlier. And she developed um, a hands-on form of learning. And hands-on learning um, with Barbara Brennan utilizes the 
the hands as the receptor of information and the giver of information. And literally, if you calm your yourself down to the point where you can relax totally, you can get to the point where you can run your hand over a cantaloupe. I taught Jim how to do this, but he doesn't do it all the time over in the store. And you can just sort of sense which cantaloupe is energetically more alive and which is more ripe. You know, in the same way with crystals, if you've ever gone into a rock shop, you know, a crystal rock shop, like when you're on vacation, just go like this with your hands and then run them over a whole tray of crystals and don't look and your hand will naturally go to one. And it's the one that you can get some tingling in your fingers. And so we have that, but it's not um, uh, evaluated completely in terms of our utilization and harnessing of that trait of the human being. It has to do with the receptivity of the skin, because remember I said the skin is both, it's, it's a, plays a critical role in our immune system, which is our protective system. The whole human beings are put on this planet to do two things, to interface with the environment and to produce, survive and produce. That's what we do. And without that, we're not a species anymore. And so you have to be able to survive. And that peripersonal space gives this mm -hmm. a, that ability to know what's happening when we don't look at it directly. Um, the other reason why each one of our senses is a duality, like our eyes. Our eyes are not just for vision. They're for vision and timing. Our ears are for hearing, auditory, and balance. Our skin is our largest organ in our body, our skin. And the skin is not just a barrier protection. It's our primary, primary immune system. It's mm -hmm. the skin. Because without the skin sending the, the various molecules, and I won't go into it, but without, them send, without the skin sending the initial uh, response to defend, then the P and B, the B and T cells would not learn what to do when the offending problem or invader happens again. And the more that we put on our skin, including UVC man-made light, it's not designed for that. And so mm. what are we doing to the microbes that live on the skin? Mm. So many times we, you know, science is saying, particularly lighting science, oh, don't worry, uh, the first two layers are dead skin anyway. Well, that's wrong. It's keratin, and it's there for a reason. It's there yes. for a reason. Well, what's interesting is, like, you talked about that crystal thing, and a lot of people, you know, go, oh, God, where are these people going with this? This is nuts. Right, I right. actually I actually think people should use what, you know, what I said earlier is infer the opposite, right? So we know that um, people that are blind develop better hearing. We know that, you know, people that never learn to read have better memories. Like, think about that yes. for a second. Someone that's never learned to read can remember things better than someone that, that has. Like, you have to right. do what you have to do, and your body gives you the tools to survive. So there's changes. If you're, if you're mm -hmm. used to existing in the dark, you're going to be using your hands to feel things a lot more often and, and get your tactile natures. Uh, well, no, in addition, you're going to be using that peripersonal space more. And your sure, awareness. Yes. You're in the dark. Like just you because the science hasn't proven this doesn't mean that it doesn't right. exist. 
That 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 mm-hmm. those two things don't um don't go together just because something is not proven by science it doesn't mean it's not there right. and it, especially you know, if if a large groups of humans into it that that's real it probably mm-hmm. is real actually like like the idea uh, that humans have a soul or some sort of spirituality all humans believe that in all in all countries whether it's different but there's something mm-hmm. there's something more that's this, to this consciousness that that we that we are we don't have proof of and that doesn't that doesn't yeah. mean it doesn't exist those are two different things you know you know so taking circling back to the to the darkness aspect the thing that we also have to realize is that in the darkness our eyes are also have they also have developed not only our eyes but all other species from spiders and you know why that some have eight eyes why some have six and you know, humans, and we only have two eyes, and, and why our skin is, is extraocular. Um, but the thing about the eyes is that the Prajinsky effect at night, you know, something during the day, um, we are going to, you know, we're, we're directed to be biologically impacted by blue things during the day. And we notice mm-hmm. red things, but, but during the day, it's the blue that's going to impact us. At night, because of the sensitivity of the eye, the dominance of the blue is subjugated. We don't notice that many blue things visually because we are biologically tuned to those so-called blue things. That's the reason why um, we seem to think that the moonlight is, is blue tinted or silver tinted. But when you look at a spectral power distribution of the moon, Oh my God, it's, it's red. It's heavily red weighted. Jim and I did that. We came back from Hawaii and we've been taking a lot of photos. We were documenting a, a series of uh, biological aspects as well as neurological, uh, biological, neurological impacts over a 24 hour period. So we were in Hawaii doing some research. When we came back, um, we we found two things. We found the problem with the Davis streetlights, which we immediately worked on. And I got on Jim's case and I said, here's what we have to do. We have to take a photo of the moon and look at the SPD. We have to take a meter reading, a photo and see what's going on. He said, well, you know, here it is, you know. And I said, no, I have to be able to see the true reading. So that was his assignment. So about an hour later, he came back and said, I got it. So we went out, it was like, I don't know, two o'clock in the morning, and when we had the opportunity, it was a full moon, and we go out, and he and I are propped up in this contorted version of whatever with the mirrors and the light meters and whatever, trying to get it, and we took the SPD, and it was the first one that, that we had ever seen, and it's circulated now, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of times on the internet, that shows that moonlight is 4125. But when you look at the SPD, it's heavily red weighted. And you all know that you can manipulate LEDs with the phosphors to get anything that you want. But moonlight is red, but we think we see blue. And when we take blue meter and place it up here, yeah, it's going to read 4125, but it's not (laughs) taking the true spectral power distribution of that energy. So now I know that the sun is blue and the moon is red. I think I can shut it down, Scotty. We're done. We're retiring. Yeah. I'll uh, I'll uh, get I'll get my check no, no, at the no, door. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. No. So anyway, um, but there's so much to talk about. But you have to be able to have a show like this 
to be able to open the doors. And I'm sure I'm going to get hit with, oh, Deborah doesn't know what she's talking about, da 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 and, but this is something that you have to explore. You have to understand it from that basic level and then apply the scientific evaluation to it and vice versa. And you have to go beyond just assuming, oh yeah, well, everybody has lights, so we'll just put more lights. Or um, several, I'm looking at the LDNA magazine behind you. So LDNA, uh, DAK, uh, all the other European um, you know, magazines all showcase, and they're beautiful installations of buildings at night with water right there next to them on the dock, on the beach, in the lagoons that they're built on top of. And the photos are reflected, One show the reflected light from those buildings right into that water body. And my first mm -hmm. gasp is, oh, my God, what about the life forms, plant, yeah. you know, bacteria, uh, whatever, fish, mammals, whatever's living in that water, reptiles. I feel that, too. I feel that, too. And that's truly where my sense of urgency comes from, which is that it's almost like I can feel the harm happening and I just want to shut it off. And yeah. so that's that's and I think. You know, this has been such an interesting conversation. And I think what we aim to do here is to bring people on and to have these open conversations where we talk about what is truth, how can we get there? Because it's it's a point on the horizon that is ever moving. And so by opening up these conversations, we hope to elevate the thought and to garner the awareness that we need across the public so that we can just turn the lights out in that simplicity, there is something yeah. that we can really do. So yeah, so thank you so much. And I appreciate all of your thought leadership that you have done to bring information from science to, um, to designers, because that is uh, two different ways of thinking that really needs a better bridge in our industry. So I thank you for that. Mike, do you Very have any well, final comments? You know, I, could, I, I feel like this conversation, I have lots of notes here, but we've already gone an hour, Deborah. So uh, we've had some feedback. And so the, one of the feedbacks from, from uh, the listeners uh, and colleagues that enjoy this show is that they want you to say goodbye. So don't end it too quick. So <laughs> some final thoughts from you, Deborah. Oh, okay. They want me to say goodbye. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know because no, we we shut it down too quick, and people feel like it's not finished or something. We I we got some feedback on oh, that. No, wait, so. wait, you just said they want me to say goodbye. Like yeah, yeah, off. they want we want they want they want there to be well, a formal goodbye at the end of the show. Let's so frame it like this, ah, Deborah. What okay. do you want to leave our listeners? That's with? a better What's way to put it. The one thing you want to tell them. Thank you, Jane, oh, okay. for saving oh, okay. me. <laughs> Thank you for yeah, saving me. Yeah, because it was like what your listeners are writing in saying, give her the hook. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> They want us to end the show okay. in a nice way. That's what they want us to okay, do. Okay, in a nice way. In a nice way. Um, use your intuition. Mm. Use your intuition. Remember what your grandmother told you. Um, explore science. And don't take what you see on television as science. Don't take what you see on television or in the media or social media as the final whatever. 
and you have to take everything, including what I've said today, you have to run with it. And for those of you that are interested, you know, contact Mike and Jane, I'll be more than happy to send you uh, a link to that, to that seminar that I did at Life Fair on, on microbiota in the skin or the, mm. the, the photo that, you know, the SPD of the moonlight being 4125 and heavily red skewed and just minuscule amounts of, of short wavelength or any of the other references that I gave, I'll be more than happy to send those out. So anybody that would like to, you know, address those issues I raised or have the supporting evidence, um, just, you know, contact Mike and Jane. I'll be more than happy to, you know, speak with you directly or, or send you whatever you need. Um, because unless we all share this on whatever level, um, it's not going to be good for us as a species or the rest of the species that live in the world, named or unnamed at this point. There you go. And so, Scott, uh, why don't, Deborah, why don't you just send them all over to, to us now and we'll have them posted on the, on the website beside the podcast. Oh, sure. somewhere. Okay. Yeah, so we'll yeah. have that for the listeners. And if you've made it all the way, I know I can speak on behalf of Jane Slade and Deborah Burnett. Thank you very much for listening. I know you're starving. Yeah. You're hungry for darkness, but uh, we're, working, <laughs> we're working on it, folks. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Bye, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening for, to Starving for Darkness. Before you go, though, I want you to listen to Greg Eric, co-host of the Get a Grip and Light, Lighting podcast, and I talk about the magicians. Yeah. Down at Evluma, Greg, E-V-L-U-M-A dot com, rethinking LED in all directions, brother. That's right, and they're doing that with their Omnimax. We talked about mm. it at the beginning, but yeah. who has 2K? Nobody. They have 2K. They have 22K, 24K, 27K. All the two is covered. If you need Keep a 2K it in the twos, brother. anywhere, you've got it covered with this. And then they have multiple wattages, and it's got that surge protection we talked about, 10-year warranty, photo control, fail-safe, hands down, the best cob on the market. That surge protection is the bomb, man. Just not getting blown out, covering off the photo cell, keeping it things real magic inside that fixture for you keeping it low on the kelvin temperature side but also offering applications for other other color temperatures as well rethinking led in all directions this whole industry needs a reset and i'm so happy that Evluma is on the cutting edge of that go to evluma.com